Hey nerds, in a moment, you'll be treated to another episode of Zeitgeist. First, you should be aware, I'll be whispering like this, but just in the first half, since we recorded this episode during two different days. Second, be aware that there are spoilers ahead for the whole series of Succession, and a few light spoilers for Ted Lasso. And third and finally, while the show is free of all adult material, Succession is also TVMA and is absolutely not suited for all audiences. On that note, enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Zeitgeist, the show where we talk about how we feel about the latest TV and movies with some music along the way. I am Jordan Conrad, and joining me, he's N to the IV, he be the IV, and he's pardon, pardon like a pro, it's Nival Boz. What's up, man? Good. Usually you have like a connection to like whatever cold open that you're doing. So what was the connection here? Because I totally missed it. You missed L to the OG from Succession Season 2. Oh, right, right. I think it's because you're whispering today because it's like late where you are. I didn't really register it. That's so true. I was being a little aharmonious. And that's a deep cut for all the Succession fans. Right now, we are going to be talking about the full series of Succession. And right after that, we're going to be talking after the break about Ted Lasso. Niv, one of the big things that I have been hearing on the media circuit is the idea of quote-unquote peak TV ending, and it's easy to see why people would take that analysis. It's really strange to see some of the greatest shows of our generation ending all within the same month. Do you feel like this is just a really, really sad time for people who are big fans of TV? Or is it something deeper? Do you think that this could be a sea change in terms of how media is approached from this time forward? I mean, I think that's like a really great question because it feels like the end of an era. In only a week, four really important shows in our zeitgeist ended. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Succession, Barry, and potentially Ted Lasso. I think it's also really emblematic or it feels really emblematic of a time of change because of the whole situation going on in LA with the writer's strike because writers are fighting for change. They're fighting for fair compensation. They're fighting for AI to be regulated and they're fighting for more rights as writers, as creators, as the very people who give life to these shows and to these stories. So it does feel like a really important point in our culture, especially in terms of how we create stories and how we translate them onto TV. So yeah, I do think that like the fact that these peak television shows have ended around the same time is just enforcing the idea that a change is coming, like a new era is dawning. But as with every sort of era of TV, it's just going to change. It's not going to end. It will never end, but it will change. What it will change to, we don't know yet, but the possibilities are exciting. I think the big change might be that 
there will be occasionally budget cuts. We'll start to see ways in which a show might be wrapped in a little tighter. Maybe the cast will be a little bit smaller. You won't see so many huge stars on really well-performing shows. And that might just be the way for them to sort of take losses on one show and keep another show going. Because right now the TV networks are taking major losses. And just today, hearing about the DGA contract being signed, they are allowing for pay increases pretty much across the board, and that means that likely the writers might be able to get the same treatment once their strike ends. And that just means that there will be less TV. But I also dissent that quality would be an issue. Moving in to our first segment, I want to say that I am ready to talk full spoilers on all four seasons of Succession. So this is a huge flag. I will only do this once for all four seasons of the HBO show. And I will also say that the reason why I really want to talk full spoilers is because it forces every single listener of our program, as well as all my friends who listen to this program, to watch Succession. I have been talking about it for the past year. It is one of my favorite TV shows ever made, and I'm so, so, so excited to talk about it with you today, Niv. So with that, let's talk about the main cast of the TV show Succession, opening with the absolutely incredible Emmy-winning actor Jeremy Strong, who I was so fortunate to actually meet in person working on the Aaron Sorkin movie Trial of the Chicago 7. Jeremy Strong is truly one of the best actors of our generation. He is a mammoth on this show, but he is also incredibly kind he is nothing like the self-flagellating method actor that certain New Yorker writers would have you believe. He is so sweet and so humble and so hardworking. And he plays someone who is nothing like any of those things. <laughs> the second eldest sibling of the Roy family, Kendall, who I would say may or may not be the star of the show. He is what you might consider a main character in the traditional sense, despite the show being largely ensemble-based. I would say also the first and final seasons do the most to emphasize his character as the prodigal son. He is one of those guys who says a lot of stuff and kind of tries to check you at the door. You know, he is almost like a bodyguard in the way that he grounds his father's company when he is able to do so. However, he is often a little bit too aggressive and almost comes off like a tiny puppy or a lap dog. He launches at you without any real repercussions. He's all bark and often no bite. He is one of three major siblings that the show focuses on, but the eldest is truly is named Connor, and he is played by Ellen Ruck, best known for his role as Cameron on Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but he has also had several other ventures, including his role in the movie Speed. He is the black sheep of the family, and he stays on the periphery for most of the show. The middle child is Roman, who is played by the Culkin sibling, Kieran. Sibling, of course, 
to the star of Home Alone. He is the middle child, but often I think fans will confuse him with the youngest. He seems like the youngest sibling. I don't know, Niv, if you thought he was the youngest, but he's actually the middle child. He's often the one that the writers kind of shift around the most. I think Kieran Culkin, his personal character has changed the character of Roman the most throughout the show because Roman was really kind of detached in the really, really early parts of the show. He also was married, supposedly. I mean, it was it's one of those kind of complicated things. We think he was married in the pilot, and then his wife kind of disappears. And children, yeah. <laughs> he is arguably the most creative of the three focal Roys, and he's also the most volatile, and I would say could be the most cruel, but it's always under the guise of humor. Rounding off the siblings is Sarah Snook's character Siobhan. She's the politically-minded youngest sibling of the Roys, who eventually gets ensnared into her father's net after being promised the company. This is in season two. Shiv is an outlier in some ways due to her political support for someone like Gil Evis, who is a proxy for someone like Bernie Sanders, who she works with happily. However, I don't think she has any reservations about playing politics as a game rather than as a strategic move towards progress or even any goal whatsoever. She is a unique character and very complex character and maybe my favorite of the show, at least my favorite of the siblings. And fun fact about Sarah Snook, she is not someone that many people knew before the show started. She was probably of the main cast, maybe the most unknown, but she was supposed to be Lisbeth, the main character in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which was directed by David Fincher. And I would say is largely relegated to the background of Fincher's oeuvre, and I think it's really cool that Sarah Snook kind of has that detached and charismatic, but also somewhere in between, not necessarily all charisma, but not all brains, something really unique and a great timbre to work with, and she's also, I believe, British or Australian. She's Australian. And you can almost sometimes hear her accent peek through (laughs) in the show. So, of the siblings... Who do you think you relate to the most? I think easily Kendall, because out of all the characters, I think he cares the most about the world that he's in, in the sense of like the world that is enveloped by Logan Roy, because that's another character, a really important character, the king of this story, the father, played by the brilliant Brian Cox. And Kendall very much is like, I want the keys to the kingdom. I really care about it. I think I could do a good job. I'm the only real choice. And for most of the show, the show convinces us that he is the real choice. It's just about, is he the preferred choice? And the other siblings constantly fight. Siobhan or Kendall, they fight to prove that, no, he's not the only choice. We are. We're better than him. That's like the whole premise of the show. That's the whole fight for the succession. And ultimately speaking, the reason why I stick with Kendall throughout the show is because the show focuses on him technically a little bit more than the other characters, at least I feel, you see a lot more humanity in him. And that humanity becomes really attractive because he becomes almost like this anti-hero in a world that's a proxy for the Murdoch family. You immediately jump to the situation that all of these kids are in and how that's the thing that draws us closer together to somebody like Kendall. And one thing, the best way I've heard Succession's characters described is 
as if you give a regular schmegular person $1 billion and unlimited power, what kind of personality disorder would they develop? As close to a god as you can be. And the answer, I think, is within the showrunner Jesse Armstrong's brain, and he posits four answers for four characters. And there are other characters that are in that same zone. Naomi Pierce, for example, as possible foils for this web of blind privilege and something maybe a little bit less corrupt. However, when you have that kind of influence and power, there are always going to be inevitable heirs, you know, to heir is to human. And so seeing the ways in which these people fault in various different ways in order to succeed in business is something that I find to be really engaging with the show, something that constantly bears new fruit and has a very, very long history in the grand scheme of drama as we know it in the English-speaking world. And I think that's so cool to see all that come through. But yes, of course, we do have to talk about the wolf in the hen house, which is Logan Roy. So he is obviously best known in the show as the CEO of Waystar Royco, which is a very close proxy to the point where the Murdoch family had certain clauses in contracts saying that they will not speak to anybody who works as a contractor or otherwise for Warner Media Discovery because this show plays it so close to the Murdoch family drama. But he is not only an intelligent businessman, but he is someone who has his priorities a little out of whack because it seems the only thing that excites him is the art of the chase itself. And that comes through in the ways in which the show will change on a dime and Logan can't always be reliable to stick to one thing. He'll always push a little bit harder, especially if he's close to a deal, just to see how much he can win. And he's not just looking out for a bottom line like some of the downstairs grunts. He's aggressive. He treats running a company like an art rather than inward looking at the media he's managing, looking at the creative aspects that running a company like ATN or Waystar Royco can posit. And he's certainly not looking to tell news. As a father, he's also frequently verbally abusive and weaponizes what he has against his children. Against Roman, he appears to also be physically abusive, and no small part probably due to Roman's more effeminate qualities, which are highlighted later in the show. And he's also brother to Ewan Roy, and Ewan is the actor who is in the movie Babe. He's in a lot of things. Like, he's been in American Horror Story as well. He's like, I have his name on the tip of my tongue. He is James Cromwell. And yes, he might be one of the more prolific actors on the show. Also, the downstairs grunts, as I mentioned before, there are the billionaires, the upstairs kids, and then you have this whole crew of people. You make it sound like Downton Abbey, where it's like upstairs, downstairs, but it's all upstairs. Because even the downstairs people, the people who are outside of the core family, they're still like close to billionaires. Let's be honest here. That's true. They are close to billionaires, but sometimes just physically close to billionaires, and they could lose their money at any time, which is one of the big differences between the main couple that draws the show together, which is Tom Wamsgans and Shiv Roy. Tom is, of course, still a billionaire, but he is a billionaire 
by marriage alone. And I'd say the duo of Tom and Greg are often the main B-plot to many of the middle episodes of Succession. They often will be integrated into the main plot and certain really high-profile, really high-octane episodes, but then there are also a lot of times when they get to do their own thing, some of their best episodes, like when there is a bomb threat at Waystar Royco, and I think that's season two. Yeah. They need to all stay in one place, and all the kids get to go into this special room, and Tom and Greg get to hang out in a conference room, and Tom and Greg kind of have like a little bit of a back and forth, and it's a very good episode. But the dynamic is, I would say, in no small part, shaped by the real acting chemistry between Matthew McFadyen, who is this all-star British powerhouse maybe as prominent as James Cromwell, although slightly younger, and Nicholas Braun, who he is a bizarre casting choice in principle because he is in no way the same caliber as Matthew McFadyen as a resume actor, but he works out spectacularly, and he really brings such a unique perspective to the show. And of course, it's not like Nick Braun hasn't been in anything. He's been in Sky High, the Disney Channel original movie. And also is the owner of Ray's Bar on the Lower East Side. But I think it's actually more of a function why they cast an unknown or someone who was pretty unknown into this series filled with powerhouses because there's always two stories like there's always two inciting incidents in a story that are are quite famous i'm only going to speak to one which is technically the more famous one but it's when a stranger comes to town it's the idea that when a stranger someone who's like completely new to the world of the story comes in and then because he comes in the story story changes. Or it's not necessarily because he or she comes into the world. It's just that they arrive at a time where the story begins to change. And the inciting incident is this strange cousin that everybody barely remembers comes to town and then wiggles himself into the story of giants. And though he is not ever taken seriously, his presence does shift the politics just enough to lead this domino chain that lasts three or four seasons. Yeah. I mean, the real inciting incident is, of course, this question of succession. Because if I remember correctly, the pilot has to do with Logan's birthday. Right. And at the end of the pilot, he has a serious health concern and he goes to a hospital. And that's where we end the pilot. Yeah, so almost like a Godfather-esque thing where the patriarch is clearly dying and we need to come up with a plan on who will succeed him. And that's the real through line here. But what I'm trying to say is in terms of a lot of other characters in the show, a lot of them could be considered the main characters of their own stories. Because even though Tom and Greg are a comedic duo and that adds like an amazing inner fabric into the show, ultimately Tom is chasing after his own wants and needs and the rest of the characters do as well. It's not just completely centered around the three core siblings. And I want to say core siblings because the fourth sibling is still important, which is Connor. But often Connor is relegated more onto the sidelines like a lot of other really, really great characters on the show who get a few lines in every episode. Sometimes they get whole scenes, but usually they tend to get paired together, whereas Connor uniquely has 
small parts of many episodes, but occasionally gets to really come to the forefront and really shine because, again, he's their brother, so he really does play a important part to the show. But as we see in the late, 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 late episodes of the show, he has a very different relationship with their father and has a totally different perspective on the world of Waystar than any of the three main cast. And I also want to point out just a quick list of names of all of the other downstairs people that I want to mention just because they are all so incredible. Because I don't think these people necessarily in the short time we have are going to get too much credence, but they are incredible actors. And these like New York stage actors that might not otherwise be doing much at all. There's the character of Jess Jordan played by Juliana Canfield. She, I've not seen in anything else, but just an incredible actress. Uh, Adrian Brody comes in for one episode. Frank played by Peter Friedman. Comfrey played by Dasha Nekrasuva. or Necrosova, and she is in this podcast called Red Scare. Very strange. Uh, Carolina, played by Dagmara Dumchik, who's married to Patrick Wilson. Jerry Kelman, who's J. Smith Cameron. And Carl Mueller is played by David Rashi of the little-known sitcom Sledgehammer. And of course, rounding out the cast is my favorite, Arian Moyad, who is now in the Spider-Man movies. And I really am excited to see him in that. And if I remember correctly, he started out his career on the Chicago stage scene. His family settled in Glenview, Illinois. But you were talking about the main three. Each of the main three has an argument to be a main character of the show. Roman, you could say, has season three. It's very clear to me that Shiv gets season two as kind of her mini arc. Obviously, Kendall takes the first and final season, but I would say Shaban to me, if you wanted to pinpoint a hero's journey, Shaban is the one who changes the most from beginning to end because her character begins on the periphery in the show And because of this chain of events, starting with the father's illness and moving further and further towards an inevitable succession, the question becomes who's going to take it. And Shaban entering the ring is a major, major moment. And up to the very end, she is making plays and she's always a very, very active character in a way that not all of the other characters are. But nonetheless, she really is a center point to many, many, many key scenes and doesn't muck about in a lot of the ways that some of the other B-tier characters do. Yeah, but what I think you said that was absolutely correct is that each character outside of Kendall, Roman and Shiv, get their season where they are truly after the point of succession because they believe they've been tapped for it. So their want gets truly unlocked because eventually all three siblings want the same thing. They want to succeed their father. But it's deeper than that. Like for Shiv, it's recognition from her father that she's not just like a woman, but she's a Roy. That's always a point of contention between the both of them that she considers herself the smartest and the most like savviest of of her entire family. But she's not even considered to be such because she's a woman. And in a lot of ways, it's similar to Roman because Roman himself, even though he's not the youngest, 
Congress, he's viewed as the most immature. And because he's viewed as the most immature, people think he can't do it. And when people think you can't do something, that serves as like great motivation to do it, to try and do it. So I think that both Roman and Shiv get their opportunities to be like, no, I want to prove daddy wrong. I can do it. I was born to do it. But it's deeper than that. They just want Logan's approval. And a lot of people just want Logan's approval because it's so unattainable. Because at their very core, they're all children and their father is their father. And it also extends to Kendall, but I think in a more complex way because we focus on him much more. So we get to see different sides to him all the time. Whereas with Roman and Shiv, when their wants truly get unlocked and they become their own sort of main characters of their particular season where they chase after what they want, then we get to see their sides. And then we get to really delve deeper into what makes them tick as human beings. They were always great characters, no matter the season. But when the spotlight is truly on them, we don't just see their strengths fully, we see their blemishes. They're really fascinating and horrifying blemishes. And so complex. You mentioned briefly the idea of gender playing a part in the show. And I think that's something really important to touch on because I would say two of the arguably lead characters are Jerry Kelman, who I mentioned before, and the character of Shiv. And both of them have a very different relationship with their own gender. And often you see these characters putting their own sex aside in order to pursue business. And as is such, often either put their own needs aside or just completely throw women under the bus. The whole drama of season two, especially, revolves around the idea of no real person involved and that there were people in their cruises division who were harassed or assaulted. And so all of this stuff just was nebulous enough that they were able to get away from it, but only so far. And that is one moment where you see both of these characters put their sex aside and say, well, we are vessels for Waystar, and that means that we have to not side with the side of feminism, even while Shiv is so-called a liberal. She's definitely what one might call a quote-unquote neo liberal. Well, I wouldn't say neo, just because you can't be neo in that world. If you're neoliberal, you wouldn't dare step into this world. You wouldn't go back to this world. I think she's left-leaning at best. I think she has, you know, liberal thoughts, but she cannot act upon them. She can't, because doing so would betray her family, and her core is her family. And it always comes back to the idea of family, because these characters are both really loyal to their family, but also very much disloyal to their family. So it's very cyclical in that way. But in terms of feminism and in terms of like gender, the proxy here is again, conservative media. That's the world the show lives in. And conservative media has had a horrid track record in regards to how it treats women. I mean, just look at the movie Bombshell. There was a whole movie made about it. And still this year, it, it's a man's world. That world is a man's world. It's a source of pride, at least for these characters, because none of them take Shiv seriously. And even there is a conversation between her and Logan. And she basically says to him, like, you don't want to truly pick me because I'm a woman. And then he looks at her and he says, well, yeah, it doesn't help that you are. And he says it in such a matter of fact way, like it's embedded to the fabric of this world because it is. It's seen as like a sign of weakness to put a woman 
in power. But that's like such a ridiculous backward statement. But it is in that world because the people watching the, you know, the consumers that pay the dollar for this world that keep this world alive are people that don't like seeing women in charge who have more conservative ideals. And there's also the side of how Roman ends up treating Jerry because this character has a tremendous amount of power having the CEO of Waystar in his family, his, his immediate family, that he's able to do really horrible things, not including blowing up a spaceship. And he takes advice from Jerry. He keeps Jerry very, very close, but he also harasses her sexually. He sends her explicit pictures without any real modicum of consent or any normal sense of boundaries or relationship. And ultimately, while the show does seem to show that like Jerry does have warm feelings for Roman as a person and that, that this could have feasibly been something even far from sensitive of what is considered a normal relationship, quote-unquote. I think that Roman ended up completely souring that by the end of the show. And Jerry, and she ends up getting fired by Logan if only because he doesn't know how to navigate a situation that dire. And then two episodes later, she gets fired by Roman again. So by the end of the show, she's been fired two or three times. Jerry does get harassed and Shiv does get belittled. But I think it's also important to say that these characters, these two specific characters, they're people who are just, they're active participants in the system. They themselves are abusers and they themselves use, you know, whatever tools they have to get ahead because that's the world they live in. It's the, what the way the world has made them. But not to get too esoteric about the idea of gender in the world that we live in, an ever-political world, but the victim-abuser dichotomy can be somewhat reductive for this reason, because of course we are all prone to error, and some more than others. And in this show, you get to see all of these people under a microscope and really see the ways in which they are all truly and often horrible, horrible people who put profit in front of anything resembling human kindness. But I think it's okay to talk about in regards to the succession world, because the succession world isn't necessarily real, or at least not real to a lot of people. Like, it's very rare for a person to get that much wealth, and even that is condensing it into this show, like how you operate around that wealth. So succession can sometimes come off as cartoonish, but in the best way, because it's so beyond our understanding of like how that kind of world operates, because it's not our world. It's not like 99% of this world world's world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Jerry openly receives Roman's advances or harassments towards her so she can get ahead because she herself is also trying to succeed Logan. In fact, almost every character, even outside the three core siblings, is trying to succeed Logan in some way. They themselves are rivals to the family and to the siblings. And that's what I mean, because everybody has sort of this similar want. That's what stems sort of this cartoonish feel. 
feel because it almost feels like a race to the top. Who will get to the peak of the mountain first? And how will they scale said mountain? So there's alliances, betrayals. It feels like both Shakespeare and Chekhov together. And that's where it feels cartoonish because it feels like high drama in certain aspects. But then it feels like very low and cheap drama in another, like very soapy drama in another. That's interesting that you called it soapy because you're not the first person I've heard who has called it that based off of what the day-to-day of the show really is, which is about business deals and the cartoonish way in which mass amounts of money gets shifted around, and often it's just other people's assets moving about. So I would say it's more closely aligned with a satire, like really, really dry satire, than something like even a network drama like Desperate Housewives. The fact that you're able to marry both this satirizing comedic element, which is traditionally seen as a low art with something that's high art that inspects our society in a deeper way, because it doesn't just talk about wealth. It talks about politics. It talks about the corruption of humankind when they come in contact with that amount of wealth and power. You talked about how because these people are wealthy, they are powerful. I think it goes deeper than that. It's almost like a Sith or Jedi mantra here, where wealth leads to power, power leads to corruption, and corruption leads to suffering. Because at the end of the day, even though these characters are incredibly wealthy, they are in a constant state of suffering. They can't possibly ever be happy because of all of the issues that they have inside themselves. And the fact that they're suffering is both empathetic, but it's also hilarious because they have no, in a normal Joe Schmo way, they have no right to be suffering over these kinds of things. But one of the big things here is whether or not the children decide to sell the company in the last season. And the big takeaway is that either they lose the company and get billions of dollars, or they keep the company and retain billions of dollars. But either way, they don't have any problems. It's interesting that you point out the amalgamation of high and low art which I do really like in a show, but I wouldn't say is particularly apt in this case. I would say it's really apt in something like Barry, where you really do get kind of the dumb humor and also the other kinds of stuff. But with Succession, a lot of its humor is based in wordplay. It has more and faster dialogue than almost any major, quote, peak TV show. It has more words per minute than The West Wing, which is well known for being a word a second. And that, I think, is something that plays largely into the style of the show. So I would say if there's one thing to knock it on, it is actually the fact that it has issues with accessibility, especially to people who aren't able to kind of let the language wash over them, especially if you don't know anything about business at all, if you don't know anything about stock numbers. The idea of the number dropping $100 per share doesn't make a whole lot of sense to a person who has never learned about a public company before. And that is, I think, a major thing you have to sort of jump over in order to really understand the show, understand the stakes of the show. But also, maybe you're right in the sense that there is a human element to the show 
that you wouldn't need to know those things for. And the characters ground the show in such a wonderful way, as we've mentioned, that it's all about a family, and so you don't necessarily need it to love it, but it does certainly help, and I think it makes the show a lot funnier if you know the business machinations that are happening at the time, and even how sometimes ridiculous these characters are, because the way in which these people talk about business is obscene and horrible and bad. The only person, as I mentioned, who has any kind of creative fuel in their body is Roman, but Roman is all about taking news and turning it into info bites. And Kendall, he doesn't really care about anything regarding news. As far as he's concerned, it could just be Al Jazeera 24-7, and it would be all the same to him. And for Shiv, Shiv doesn't even know about the business in the first place. So not only is she not interested in the media, but ATN is not her game, as we mentioned. Like, yeah, she's kind of left adjacent when it's convenient to her, but she also does have a gut which ultimately turns against all her siblings and turns against the idea of keeping Waystar. She's sold on ideas. She's like, I will change it from within. Because it's that lie she tells herself that she's like a better person than her siblings. She's like, I will turn ATN and Waystar Royco into a more progressive and more centered conglomerate. But that's not true because as you said, she doesn't understand how the business works. So it's even if she were to try to do that, she would bump up against so many walls that her father had set up for years building this business that it's not feasible. Kendall very much is like, I only care about the business side of things. I care about developing and expanding. I don't care about what's already there. I just want to grow, grow, grow and become bigger than my father because that's his inner motivation to truly surpass his father in every single way. And with Roman, it's like, look, what can I do to capitalize on what I already have, right? So how about we make it even more right-wing, more explosive, more entertainment? Because to him, it's about like being entertained. His entire thing is like, I have a zest for life because I need it. I need it in order to survive. Otherwise, like things get boring. I feel really claustrophobic in the world that I've built up. I need that thrill. I need that challenge. I need something to constantly be funny and to constantly make me feel good. He's like an adrenaline junkie. He's kind of Caligula-esque. Yeah, exactly. Because he is like, what can I do to keep the party going without under understanding the ramifications of what that party even means in the first place and the damage it can do? Because one of the big major plot points is that he supports this neo-Nazi for president. Yeah, the final two seasons, he and Jared Menken, who is this alt-right figurehead that somewhat aligns with Donald Trump, but in other ways feels very uniquely a character that could be in our political system in 30 years. Or very soon, actually. <laughs> or could be a younger version of DeSantis. I mean, he's just a really, really, really right-wing guy and is more interested in power in regard to political activism which I think is an important turn. But when you're talking about the ways in which these characters progress from season to season to season, what I also wanted to mention is the interesting thing about the show is that characters like Shiv and Kendall, both characters I would say vie for being the 
primary protagonist, depending on how you view it. Both of them start at a place and move and move and move and change and grow. And sometimes in the case of Kendall, he'll do a 180 season to season. Yeah. In the first season, he is all about becoming the new Logan. In the second season, he loses that lust due to the fact that he loses any sense of personal his father wins. He blackmails him in the end of the first season. And then that leads to Kendall's fall from grace, from everything, because he's essentially like a neutered dog following his dad's footsteps. He's non-independent. He can't do anything. And then once that gets cleared up in season three, he comes back with a vengeance. And then he's Nero, and he's ready to totally kill Logan and says, you know, I am better than you. He tries to speak it into being. He says, I am the person that I want to be, and that is nothing like you, is nothing to do with you. But by exactly one season later, when speaking at Logan Roy's funeral, he says the exact opposite, and that he wants more than anything to be like his father. And so that's a really interesting way in which we progress this character from season to season, starting from wanting to be his father, to not wanting to be anything like his father, to, again, realizing that his lust is always for Waystar, and it's just because there is something internal to the way that the character is. And Jesse Armstrong has said on interview that he doesn't believe in change in a human level. He doesn't believe that human beings change. And that comes through in the show in a really beautiful way because it still follows what we know of as the traditional hero's journey, but through a totally new lens of what if these people just are who they are. What you just said really cements, at least to me, that Kendall is a true protagonist of this story. Because even though, as we talked about, Siobhan has her season where she goes after what she wants, Kendall has been going after it from the start. And he follows the template of the hero's journey throughout all four seasons. It's kind of crazy because each season sort of represents a section of his hero's journey. That first season is his rise because he's attempting to overtake his father. He senses weakness and his father. He attempts to convince everybody around him that it's his time to step up. It's his time to lead. It's his time to succeed. And then by the end of the season, he fails because he gets someone killed and he's an accessory to that death. And Logan quickly finds out and blackmails him and says to him, well, you're not me. You're not my rival. You're my son. And because you're my son, I get to control you. In season two, it represents his fall. He doesn't fight. He just follows his dad's orders to the point where his siblings are like, um, what's going on? Why are you dad's lapdog? Why aren't you fighting? Why are you barely alive? There's an incredible scene, and Barely Alive is exactly right, where he and his sister are talking, and, well, talking is a strong word because he's just sort of parroting talking points and staring out blankly, and Shiv is trying to figure out what the heck is happening to her brother, because sure, he can be a little much in terms of that, as I mentioned, that I want to check you, that bodyguard energy. And maybe they don't like that energy from him, but they love him as a brother. And so seeing that sucked away from him is like watching a corpse walk through rooms. And you see him hug her and essentially say, it's never going to be me. I can't, I don't think it's ever going to be me. So 
you know, Godspeed. And that was a crazy moment. And I really think that that moment signaled a lot of things in terms of those characters' journeys that maybe we don't see under the surface. But I think that's one of the great things about Succession is that you can take these individual moments and you can start to sew through and see pretty much any pathway you go to all leads to that end point. And that's why I think the ending is so brilliant. One other thing in terms of the way in which the characters of the children interact with their father is that he is such a titan. And we've mentioned that already. He is the kind of character that they never got to know as a person. They know him as their father, certainly. And he is not a great father all the time, but he has this, and a podcaster named Van Lathan on the Ringer Network made an excellent point on this, where he mentioned the way in which as a young person, you look up to your father with such reverence and such a wide-eyed gaze. And in the later episodes of Succession, it seems as if these characters are moved away from that wide-eyedness and they're losing a lot of what love was left. And I think that's really, you know, sad and it makes the ending really, really tragic. But also they never supplant that because what happens when you have a father is you see them as a person and you can have that cycle of life and death and rebirth that Kendall has with the company, but not with his relationship to his father. He's not able to rebirth his love for his dad, and instead he becomes venomous. And he, once his dad loses his, well, his life, he, he leaves the company permanently. Then Kendall instead just goes full tilt. I think ultimately what you just talked about, that Kendall is able to approach his father in the third season and be like, I'm better than you, talks in regards to the redemption he has in terms of like the hero's journey, right? Because the third season is truly about Kendall finding himself again. And he's trying to, by reigniting that flame he has against his father, and it always comes back to the fact that his father, Logan, doesn't see any of his children as actual rivals. He sees them as his children, not necessarily things he loves, even though he does love them. He sees them as pawns he controls. He sees them as extensions of himself. He doesn't actually view them as not only rivals, but actual successors. Because to Logan, he thinks he will live forever. But what's really interesting about season three in particular is that even though Kendall is like, I'm going to fight that. It's the only way I know I can win if I, if I reignite myself. He realizes that it's not true. He can't fight his dad, at least not alone, which delves into the truth true redemption of his arc and the true redemption of the series as a whole in a lot of ways because it's in that last episode of season three where the three siblings come together and they're like why are we against each other we should be fighting together to bring down our father that's the only way we will win and in like a movie that's like the moment where the army rallies to fight the monsters and that's what makes the show so brilliant because it takes these three vile human beings and when it puts them together to fight an even viler human being, it feels like such a triumph. But of course, 
even though Kendall follows the rise, the fall, and the redemption arcs in each respective season, what the last season does really, really well is that it condenses his rise and his fall together because he quickly takes the reins underneath both of them. You know, like he is like, I'm the actual leader here and I will convince you and manipulate you that that is the objective truth. And that's the only way we can actually win if you make me your leader, right? Because in the beginning of that season, the siblings are working together. They come up with like a venture together. Roman and Kendall quickly shove Shiv out because again, that whole gender dynamic between the three of them. But Kendall quickly puts his thumb over Roman to be like, I'm the alpha dog here. You're the beta. You're not even the beta. You're the Zeta. And in every situation he gets, he's able to prove himself as like a natural successor to his father. Because even though the show sells us on the fact that Kendall is a good human being because he is different from his father, because he's more emotional than his father, more humane, the last season proves that that's not actually the case. It's almost like that Breaking Bad story parallel where we believe that a character is good because we see what motivates them is fighting evil or fighting for something good. But in reality, when we get to that very core, when we peel that onion, we see that that core is equally as rotten as the thing they're fighting against. It was brutal to see Kendall and Barry go week to week against each other as characters because they both do have that similar rot deep inside them. Yeah, and it's a rot they can't escape from, you know? Nature versus nurture. They were nurtured to be rotten to their core. And it's not necessarily their nature. Their nature is to be different. They're trying to be better, but they don't understand what better even means. And I think that's the problem these characters have. Not just, as you just mentioned, the show Barry, but Kendall and the rest of the Roys and the rest of the characters on this show. Because I truly believe they all think of themselves as good people. Like if you ask them, are you a good person? I think the only one who would answer you honestly is probably Roman. But I think if you ask Kendall or Connor or Siobhan or Tom or Greg, they'd be like, yeah. And then you'd ask them why and they wouldn't be able to really answer you because they don't know what it means to be a good person. Like granted, nobody really does. But I think these people in particular have a harder time of getting to that understanding than any other person on earth. Because again, that Sith mantra of wealth equals power, power equals corruption, and corruption equals suffering. Yeah, they get what they want, but to a... Not what they need. Truly demonic end. And one interesting parallel I wanted to bring it back to for our purposes is the idea of a Furic victory and the long-term consequences in running Waystar as a CEO outside of the Gojo deal. Now, of course, there is that added element of the fact that Lucas Madsen makes a play to become the CEO of Waystar, and ultimately, that plan has a few wrenches thrown into it through the final season. But nonetheless, just complicates it's an already sour deal, wherein Waystar is being um, looked at possibly for legal reasons, and ultimately, is the CEO of Waystar even something that a normal person would want, someone logical would even look for? And that also brings it to one of the two Shakespearean parallels, which is um, Kendall's rise as a Henry III type character. Nobody in the show, other than maybe Connor, because Connor gets to marry, you know, the person he loves. And arguably, that's the couple with the healthiest relationship in the show. Uh, Connor and his wife, Willow, played by Justine Lupe, who's also in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel quite a lot. 
one of two characters from Maisel, right? I watched the final season of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel adjacent to Succession. And that was weird because Justin Lupe and uh, Peter Friedman both appeared as like reoccurring roles on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So it was really interesting watching their Succession characters and their Maisel characters side to side. It was such a weird and jarring experience. But they're great actors and I'm glad they're getting work in other prestige television shows that have sadly now ended. But... In regard to Ferric victories, I think what's really interesting here is that none of the three core siblings won a victory here. Not even a Ferric victory. I think the closest one is Siobhan, right? Siobhan sort of dictates that she got a Ferric victory, but it's very Ferric. Because the person who wins the crown is, as we talked about, spoilers, and we need to dissect it. Wii you, Wii you. The person who won the crown was her husband, Tom, who she's had like a very fraught and very toxic relationship with throughout all four seasons. And it's the most in danger in this season. There is no love there anymore. No, they've hit full lows. Yeah. And they've clawed at each other. They've said unforgivable things to each other. And yet, by the end of the show, they're back together. But they're back together out of necessity because Tom is CEO of Waystar. I mean, like, that is a true Ferric victory for him because the person who owns Waystar, like, actively owns, which is Matson, played by Alexander Skarsgård, tells him, You're just going to be my body man. You're going to be my pain sponge. You're just literally going to be someone I give orders to and someone who's going to suffer the repercussions of any blowback. Can you do that? And Tom, who has literally been subservient for four whole seasons, was like, of course I can. That's my function. Because his entire want is to be close to power. And that's what he gets. He gets true power by being close to power. He's like a leech. If I had to compare him to something, like it would be a leech. And ironically, that's why he gets along with Greg really well, because Greg is also a leech. They're just two leeches in this conservative media empire. They truly are the disgusting brothers. And Siobhan, by staying with Tom, effectively becomes like his first lady to this dark, dark house. But in return for that, what does Shiv give up? She gives up her family. She gives up her brothers. She gives up, you know, her father's legacy to win this very, very fair victory. Because it's mostly out of spite that she decides to betray her brothers. It's not that she doesn't trust Kendall. It's more like, I hate that you won. So I will deny you that victory. And by denying you that victory, I will win. But she realizes very quickly that she didn't win, that she lost like the rest of them. And, uh, you know, we need to break this down a little bit further. Kendall is very close to winning. He's very close to winning it all because his entire motivation, along with the siblings, is to essentially cut the Matson deal. They eventually veer off from each other and decide to do their own thing. But it's their way of winning the crown. Eventually, Kendall is able to convince them like, no, it's not worth selling. My vision is the best. Choose me as your leader. He's able to manipulate both his siblings back into the fold. And he has the numbers to pass a vote through, except for one vote that changes at the last minute, and that is... Siobhan. 
a key vote, not just for the politics of the show, but for the characters themselves. Because it always comes back to the fact that it was a race to the top who would reach the peak. And right before Kendall reached the peak, Siobhan was like, I would rather push you down this mountain than to let you win, which is awful. But that is the characters that Logan set up. The manipulator, the man who could not see his children win, constantly playing games with their brains and trying to just kick them, kick them, and see if they'll keep crawling back, which is a direct line from his, uh, his ex-wife, the mother of at least three of the characters, Caroline. So there's obviously symbolism for days in this show. Kendall shown near bodies of water, and there are even ties to the Bible with the prodigal son, but there's obviously also ties to real life and the Murdoch family, and you get to see the ways in which our real human American life is being broadcast by largely British writing staff. And as a writer, Niv, I wanted to give you a moment to speak on, and as a non-American who spends a lot of time with Americans, I want to give you a moment to speak on that perspective and how an outsider is portraying this deeply American story. Well, it's interesting because like Logan and Rupert Murdoch, you know, the person who owned the Fox conglomerate, he no longer owns it, he sold it to Disney. He still owns Fox News and he owns billions of dollars. Almost just like ATN. Isn't that funny that ATN was being cut out in the show, just like in the Disney deal? Because that's his legacy, because it's the idea that information is the true power of this world and how you can sell that information. That's why Rupert Murdoch retained Fox News, because he was like, that is my true power. If I can mold the minds of my consumers, then I would have won. And he's always operated in that system. And he continues to be successful in that system because Fox News is the most watched news in America, unfortunately, because it's not really news, it's entertainment. The story of Rupert Murdoch himself is quite interesting because he's not American either. He's actually Australian who moved to the United States and became like a naturalized citizen there. But he started off in like working at his father's newspaper company in Adelaide. He started in news. He started like rather small. He grew his empire, moved to the States and became like a powerhouse voice there. Just like the story of Logan, who is a parallel to Rupert Murdoch. Logan himself is not American. He's Scottish, just like Brian Cox. You know, art imitates life, life imitates art. And ultimately speaking, it's just about like these outsiders making the American dream happen for them. So that's another thing the show does really well. It revitalizes like the American dream motif, which is the idea that if you come to America, you can make your dreams come true. But it looks at it in a very sort of real way. It asks the right questions because it's like, yeah, the American dream is oftentimes related to wealth. How much wealth can you capitalize on when you chase after your American dream? And ultimately speaking, it takes the very pure idea of the American dream and unveils it for what it is, which is just the pursuit of wealth, not just a pursuit of a better life. That's true. And that is a mantra that has continued to run through American media throughout the years. But I think the great thing about Succession is it's able to tell that in such a complete way with so many different characters showing different aspects of a corruption of the American dream. So you don't just get death of a salesman, you get a million different versions of that and just one 
very small iota could be compared to something like that play. And something interesting about the behind the scenes is that the creators have made note to always be running the cameras and they keep different takes from different styles. In the last season, one of the things that they really focus on is the idea of running a set almost like a play, which did come into a little bit of problems with an uh, actor like James Cromwell, who as I mentioned, he's, you know, a couple years old now. And he actually was suffering through long COVID while he was on set for Logan's funeral in one of the final episodes and was having a lot of trouble remembering his lines because of the effects of long COVID. So, you know, shout out to all the sets that are still masking because these kinds of things really do make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. The funeral, I think, is one of the best episodes of Succession as well. But Connor's wedding is this really, really harrowing episode, as everyone who's listening now knows, because of the way in which everything really does feel in real time. It feels like grief is what it feels like. Your gut is sinking and you realize, not immediately, but very, 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 very slowly, the gravity of the situation. Because with someone like Logan, you always think he's going to pull a trick out of the hat, but there are no more tricks. It's just life and death. And I love that episode too, because, and we really should make this clear, that's the episode where Logan dies and the show changes completely, because it doesn't become a question of like, who will succeed him? It becomes a question of who will now succeed. And I agree with you. I stick by everything I said, that Succession does at times feel cartoonish in the best of ways. But out of all the episodes I watched in Succession, this episode in particular felt like the most connected to reality because it dealt with death, this thing that's inescapable in a really real way. And it's a testament to the show that it was able to do what you just said. There were times where I was like, Logan's not really dead. He's going to come out any minute now. And it's going to be just another way to torture his children and another way to beat them. But it wasn't that. It was just death. And it was real because it was so unexpected. And it was not just unexpected for us, but more importantly, it was uninspected to his children, who at that time really hated him. But they were not able to combine that hate with their grief because they realized even though they hated their father, they also loved him. And they remembered that because they were feeling such unexpected grief over his death, which made that moment even more powerful, right? The fact that all his children were going up against him, and it was like that titanic fight between children and father. But it didn't end in a triumph. It didn't end with them overtaking him and winning the company right under him. Their immediate fight ended when he died. It has a lot in common with only one other piece of media I've ever encountered, which ironically is an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is a show that I grew up with. And its best season in season five has an episode called The Body, which is equally interesting in the way in which it shifts its tone completely away from that monster of the week formula and creates something that is totally just an hour of drama with characters that we have grown so fond of through the past five seasons. I know I'm not the only one who grew up loving Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and anyone who has watched the whole series knows exactly the episode I'm talking about. Moving out of that, I want to bring it back to kind of this era of peak TV a little bit before we take a quick break. A show like Barry feels a lot like Breaking Bad, I think, but a show like Succession feels different to me. It 
definitely has certain elements in terms of anti-heroism, but it, I think it breaks the tonal mode. What aspects of the show feel reminiscent to other programs? Do you see any connections? And how does it initially fit into that zeitgeist? And how might it change? I mean, if we had to bring it back to the very top of the episode, when we talked about an era of television ending with these four shows, Ted Lasso, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Barry, and Succession. At their very core, they're all dramedies. They have leanings toward one or the other. Barry, at times, especially in the later seasons, feels more like a drama than it does a comedy. And Succession definitely feels more like a drama than it does a comedy. But Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Ted Lasso are much lighter programming. So they feel more comedic in their tone. But at the end of the day, what grounds them is the drama and the journey their main characters have to go through. And I think that's what makes successful TV now, the combination of both between drama and comedy. I mean, look at the creator of Succession, Jesse Armstrong. He started off writing a variety show, right? But he was also working alongside McKay, who is really well known for doing stuff like Anchorman before moving to The Big Short and Vice. And so two very similar careers. So you're absolutely correct. And I feel like it was the only way this show could have been made is if a person from a comedic background came in and made it. Ultimately, the world of wealth, the world of like that 1% is inherently very hilarious because it's almost alien to us. It's completely bonkers. We look at Elon Musk and his whole debacle with Twitter and that in itself, like it's awful in terms of the ramification it has caused worldwide. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, when people comment on it, they comment on it as if he's this weird alien man who is just using his wealth to do weird things even though he's one of the most he's one of the most important environmental voices in our generation right because his entire platform is environmentalism with tesla and building rockets to mars and and someone who's taking us away from the consumption of harmful fossil fuels so in that way he is not just a great entrepreneur but a great visionary but at the same time a maverick but at the same time because he's a billionaire and because he does dumb with his money. He's also a joke. And both things can exist at the same time. Fox News is a prime example of that. It leads back into the zeitgeist, not just in the United States, but everywhere. After Donald Trump, there is a conversation regarding news and what's its function. Should it be entertainment or should it inform you? And some news are like, we should combine that. It should entertain you because it should not just read like a Wikipedia page. It should be something that excites you or something that entices you to read it in the first place. And in that way, I understand. But I think what news organizations forget is that news needs to remain objective. And that's hard. We're, we're human beings. It's hard to be objective about anything. But when you're talking about news and you're talking about like what's happening in the world, you need to try to be objective as possible because the way that news is shared has consequences. And some people capitalize on those consequences for their own benefit, like Fox News, like Rupert Murdoch. I mean, they're not the only ones, right? In Israel, it's Channel 14. But in regard to that, the fact that the succession draws from real world life in such a satirizing way is both hilarious, but also ultimately tragic because the one percenters are unfortunately the people who, who run our world. They run what news we get. They run sort of even political platforms and motivations and agendas because they lobby for political candidates. Ultimately, it feels like we are consumers of their world. And succession proves that. 
And a concept so dark being able to be brought into a space that is relatively so light is, I think, just such a triumph. And the way in which we can take these characters who are so objectively evil and root for them all to the bitter end. Every single one of them we root for in different ways. And some more than others. And there are fan clubs. And there's so much love for these characters online and otherwise that it's I think just a really amazing piece of entertainment, but it is also a phenomenal political commentary and something that shouldn't just be remembered for now, but should be remembered for all time. How do you think the show will influence future television programs? Do you see this being brought as a model, even superficially, utilizing the long take type of steady cam meets with the more freehand sort of guerrilla style filmmaking? How do you see this moving into the future? I think, like I said, the biggest indicator here is this push to be experimental with the tone that you're presenting. Because it's all about tone. Camera work can change with every show. And even though the camera work in succession is revolutionary with like these long takes, steady cam versus shaky cam, I ultimately think what will define this generation and this era of television is the fact it had such strong dramedy tones to it. And I think that's a positive thing. And in a lot of ways, it harkens back to one of our early episodes with Barry and Hacks, right? That was the entire conversation piece of that specific sort of episode of that zeitgeist. I mean, that has continued and potentially has ended in this sort of era. You know, we've bow tied it in a lot of ways with our show. But I think that moving forward, Succession will be remembered in sort of that peak of television television alongside Game of Thrones, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, all of those giants have made their mark. And I think Succession has as well. But I really want to really accent this by saying the reason Succession has had a particular impact this time around is that other really, really great shows that define this generation of television have also ended alongside it. So I think they will be remembered in conjunction, which is really important because the next thing we're going to be talking about is the marvelous Ted Lasso. What a heel turn you just made. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and listen to some music and then talk about exactly the show. Niv was just name checking Apple TV Plus's Ted Lasso. Stay tuned. Hi again. If you're hearing this, it's because you haven't decided to listen to this episode on Spotify or Mixcloud, which means you aren't taking advantage of my sick DJ skills. Think about it. Okay, back to the show. And we're back after no time at all, right, Nev? Yeah, something like that. Um, you had to get travel to Sweden and back, so that took a second. Yeah. But now we are going to be talking shortly about Ted Lasso. But in those two seconds since we last spoke, something monumental happened. It's such a monument that it happens every single year, which is the Emmy nominations dropped. And I wanted to briefly talk about, because this is an episode about the zeitgeist of TV, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of them. I know you were someone who was watching Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Have you been keeping up with it at all? It's been kind Kind of continually parking through the categories, despite the fact that in my age group, I don't know a lot of people who are watching Maisel. To me, that's sad. But I think it's also because of my ethnicity and demographic, I think, in the sense that I am Jewish. Hence, I will gravitate towards 
Jewish television. And I think because the writing is particularly really smart, it directly connects to my demographic as a writer. All my writer friends watch Marvelous as Miss Maisel. So I think it's like that niche of like 101 school of good writing. You go to watch the show to just really absorb how good writing can be on a page or on a script. And I think for any writers listening to our podcast who haven't seen Marvelous Mrs. Maisel yet, do that because it will really, really showcase what you can do on the page and the limits you can break in order to just make the best kind of dialogue you can. Seem to be particularly experimental in a way that a show like, if I'm looking at this list, I'm going to bury. Yeah. It's going to be something a little bit more grounded. What I gather, Maisel's main audience is, while substantial, a little bit older. It runs a little more towards the senior citizen and middle age. It is a period piece, but I think it does attach to that traditional demographic that is an older age group. But I think it's like the biggest Jewish show around that I can think of, or was around. It just ended, sadly, but also triumphantly, so kudos to them. But I also think that any person who's like, Gilmore Girls, like a big Gilmore Girls fan, will naturally gravitate towards the show because the same creative team. In that way that the line by line stuff is interesting in that kind of sense. The dialogue is pithy and fun and quippy. Quick. Yeah. If I remember correctly, there is like a hundred pages in the Gilmore Girls script. I remember hearing that each script was a hundred pages, even though the actual runtime was like 40 minutes or something because, because of the levity and the brevity of each sort of line spoken. Right. How much dialogue they can pack into a single episode is magnanimous. That was also the case in the David Fincher movie Social Network. Same kind of deal. It's not easy and it's not frequent, but it happens occasionally. There's a show like Barry, of course, which you and I both adore. It's kind of a shame we weren't able to talk about it on this podcast. I think we mentioned that in the last section. We did cover it. We just didn't cover the most recent season. If you want to see our thoughts for season three, please check out one of our early episodes of Zeitgeist. Yeah, that one I think I might have to replay one of these days because it was a good episode. The other stuff is Abbott Elementary, which is a little bit more American specific. I think it's lost on you a little bit because you weren't schooled in America in the public institutions, but really wonderful show as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right in that, that I gave it a shot and because I couldn't relate to it in the sense of like, wow, this is so different. So therefore, this is so interesting. It was just kind of like, wow, this is sad to me. And for other people, it's like super wholesome. And in that regard, if I'm not getting that wholesome feeling, even though that's the point of this show in a lot of ways, I wasn't getting what the show was trying to do. And therefore, I was like, wow, if I don't get it, I don't get it. And it's not my cup of tea. I definitely see the inspiration and the wholesomeness. In fact, I think that's as a comedy show, it is fairly nuanced. I don't know if it's necessarily a laugh a minute in the same way that some other comedies are. Only Murders in the Building, I think, is more of a prime example of something like that. A little bit more interested in adding jokes in, or Ted Lasso, similarly. But something like Abbott is more interested in tone. Similar to The Bear Season 1, which is nominated for an Emmy. That's a show we both have talked about and loved. And the most recent Season 2 is now out to watch. I hope we can cover 
over that, so let's actually leave it alone. Wednesday is on the list, Only Murders is on the list, Only Murders in the Building, which I really love as a show, and another show I would love to cover in the future is Jury Duty, so I'll let that alone, but that's the comedy series category for the Emmys. The drama category, is, I think, similar in tone to it, so I won't really dive into that too much, especially not on this episode, because it does feel like a lot of the times the Emmys are playing the same types of shows over and over again on their track, even if the culture itself isn't really interested in it anymore, which is interesting. And I don't think these shows are bad, as we'll talk about in a second. You know, Ted Lasso definitely lost a little bit of steam going into season three in the same way that I think Maisel has, but it still has a big audience in the same way that Maisel has. It's just that the core fan base is, I think, a little bit more particular than it was previously. I mean, what's interesting about those categories, specifically the comedy category, is that Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Barry, and The Bear are all dramedies by nature. I think Marvelous Mrs. Maisel leans far more into the comedy, but Barry and The Bear definitely lean more to the drama. It wouldn't ever call The Bear a comedy. I think that's not an apt description of it, even though there are comedic moments. Most of the time, it's just like stress. Like the only feelings I get exuded from that show is just dramatic stress. The best TV of the last year is also sometimes the most Shakespearean. Yeah. Because I think The Bear is so much more in line with the comedies of Shakespeare than it is anything resembling a comedy in modern day. And the situations and the stress, I think, are a perfect example of that. I think the types of situations they get into mid-season two are very similar to stuff like, I'm kind of breaking the seal on this, so I need to be quiet, but very similar to something like As You Like It. Yeah. But at the same time, success is in that same vein, right? But yet it's nominated for the dramatic category. So what does that say? I think what it comes down to, it's not necessarily that these shows fit into a specific genre. It's just about like award politics. Like what can these shows apply for that will give them the best chance to be nominated, right? If the dramatic category is so overblown with great shows of that year, but the comedy category is like less so, then you just apply for the comedy category across the board because then you'll actually be nominated. That's the secret, folks. Well, to take a less cynical approach and to try to widen this and make a heel turn all at once, Ted Lasso does deal with more serious topics as well. And another way to look at this isn't that TV networks are just trying to shove a round peg into a square hole, but rather that what our needs are in comedy, in drama, are changing. Succession could be considered a satire, but it is in the drama category. Ted Lasso is a comedy, full-blooded, but it also, in season two, starts to become something totally different, right? And if you compare the two, you see, and I'm pulling from your notes here, you see that there is a version of the father figure in succession that Ted Lasso feels like a response to. And Ted himself could be, I think, considered a foil to a character like, even though it's an unseen character, like Logan Roy. Because at the end of the day, they're sort of the mirror image of each other in a lot of ways. You know how mirror images are the complete opposite. But Logan very much thrives on the failures of the people around him. I think he likes keeping people below him because it makes him feel really powerful. Whereas Ted as a character is the complete opposite. He revels in helping people up and lifting them up to be the best versions of themselves and go beyond him even. I think the best trait about Ted is 
is like any good father. He raises them up in order to let them go on their own path because he doesn't dictate their every sort of movement or turn. He just trusts them to get to a point where they can take care of themselves. And I think that's why you can have a three-season Ted Lasso as opposed to a nine or ten-season version, because he is truly just letting them express themselves, and then he's able to move on from there. And I don't think that's a spoiler saying that. I think that's just the nature of Ted as himself. No, it's the premise of the show. The whole show is sold on its wholesomeness. It came out in August 2020, right after the pandemic started. It was almost like this lightning in a bottle moment where the world was on fire. You know, everybody was locked in and dealing with isolation, which was crazy. And I think a lot of the TV shows of that time were really heavy dramas. And I don't think that affected the well-being of people that well. But Ted Ted Lasso came out swinging and it was almost like a hot cocoa and marshmallows on like a cold Christmas day. It just provided what people needed at the exact time they needed it. And I think that's why it became as successful as it was when it came out, because people just came to it and appreciated for what it was, which was a show that talked about people helping each other, which is what people needed. They needed help. The world of media coming into this age looking back, you see the way in which a trauma, like a global trauma, affects culture, or even a, not even global, but within a nation, a national trauma. I look at 9-11 as something that people have written about in great deal about how much 9-11 before and after changed movies. And I think that is especially the case in both movies and TV and literature. The way in which Trump getting elected had become this like hot button thing that everybody was trying to cover, but but the more focus you gave it, the more power you gave it, and the less the media itself felt relevant and vital. But as we're leaving that era and moving into the post-COVID era, this buildup of trauma still is there that is still very relevant. This idea of a nation of hate, a nation of trauma is still so relevant that something like Ted Lasso, I think, not only speaks to the sort of like COVID lockdown need for something comforting, but it speaks to a nation of people, ironically Americans, who need that extra support emotionally to become clear-headed almost. What do you think about that? I mean, it's interesting because the premise of Ted Lasso is an American football coach gets hired to coach a football slash soccer team in England. He's a fish out of water and he's hired in order to essentially ruin the team by Hannah Wanningham's character Rebecca, you know, in a lot of ways, she's set up as the antagonist of season one, a brilliant character and a brilliant actress in a lot of ways. And, you know, it, it's interesting because like, that's the conflict. It's like the American sensibilities versus the British one. There is that extra side of Britain too, where post Boris Johnson, post Brexit world, you see that kind of connection. But I think it is fundamentally different from the American political landscape, but maybe it's similar enough that the coalescence works. Maybe there's some overlap. Well, 
in that regard, you know, they're both at the end of the day traumas. Super interesting that these are like the Western apexes of, of our world, right? This is like the white Western empires of our world that date back from 500 years ago till now. The United Kingdom and the United States, you know, they're intrinsically connected to each other because America came from England and they are tied together until the end of time because of that relationship, because of, of how America started out from England. So I think anytime there is a trauma in England, it affects the United States in some way. And every time there is a trauma in the United States, it affects England in some way. And I think the fact that you have the trauma of Brexit and then you have the trauma of the Trump presidency causing division, both things cause a bunch of division. And I think by creating this story about people unifying against not a common enemy, but a common goal on the surface, winning the Premier League, but underneath it all, it's about just lifting each other up to be the best versions these characters can be. And a lot of that is Ted Lasso just shepherding and helping people along the way. He's teaching them something that politicians from both sides of the physical barrier could learn, which is cooperation and putting your ego aside. I think that is something more and more in America. We're seeing these politicians, these super powered people trying to become the next best world leader like Donald Trump. But in reality, what he needs is to just like chill out a little bit and not be so ego driven. And that's the characters on Ted Lasso. I think of the character of Jamie Tart, played by Phil Dunster. He is the exemplary version of that trope. Somebody who is so young, so talented, but also so vapid and has no idea how to take himself seriously as a soccer player, as a football player, quote unquote. And so that's really interesting to see in the course of three seasons, Jamie becoming a better version of himself and what that really looks like because it doesn't essentially model. It does something really cool, which is what I think we've wanted media to do for years and is doing very successfully, in my opinion, which is showing that and modeling that and giving us a reason and purpose to do something like that in our world. Sports has always been an engine of masculinity, fortunately and unfortunately. In a lot of ways, it's entertainment, it's heroic, but in the darker ways, it's a cesspool of toxic masculinity. And almost all the characters in that world struggle with some form of that, even up to the third season. I think the biggest examples are Jamie, who you just mentioned. And the other big example is Brad Goldstein's Roy Kent. I think they both have this sort of chauvinistic tone to them, not because it's within their personality, but it's how the sport has molded them. Because the politics of soccer and a lot of other sports is, you know, you get to be a sports superstar when you're very young. And eventually when you get to your 30s, that's when you start transitioning out. That's when you sort of retire gracefully because your body is aging and you cannot keep up with it anymore. I mean, that's something that Ted Lasso sort of covered in season one with Brett Goldstein's Roy Kent. He's the captain of the Richmond team. He pits his head with the superstar player, Jamie Tart in more ways than one because they also chase after the same girl played by Juno Temple, right? 
Right. There's that love triangle that happens. Exactly. And in a lot of ways, it's because of Ted that they're able to not only calm down, but over the course of three seasons, become very good friends. They're able to leave their ego aside and develop into better versions of themselves. And I think that in a lot of ways, it's just representative of how these boys are very young. All of them are very young in this team become not just quote unquote men, but they just become good, well-rounded people. And that's what I really want to give credit to with Ted Lasso, even up until the third season, which is very much its weakest season, all the characters felt rounded. Even the auxiliary characters felt rounded in some way because they were all coming against the same thing together. They all had like specific conflicts they had within themselves that they had to get over. They were small to us because they were not as focused on as like some of the other main characters. But when we did cover them, it just reminded you that no, this is just another person on this team who's also going through issues, who's also going through life. And it's because of the team's strength and because of the motivation Ted Lasso gives every single one of these players, that they're all like making big monumental leaps to a better life and to a, a more rounded, happy sort of existence. Absolutely. Let's talk about before we get into the quality of the second and third season building on the first, we should talk about that firmament a little bit. As you mentioned, it was a product of COVID, but it was also a product, if I remember correctly, of a couple of like television commercials as well. Yeah. So Jason Sudeikis, I believe this was around the time he was in SNL, but basically he was hired by SNL's like parent company, NBC, to basically do commercials for their sports season, the NBC sports season in 2013. And basically he created the character Ted Lasso as part of that commercial to talk about like the soccer season in the United States. And the premise was the same in those commercials. He was an American football coach from the United States who was hired to coach a English soccer team. But rather than Richmond, AFC Richmond, as in the Ted Lasso show, the team he coached was Tottenham Hotspur FC. And what's interesting about sort of that nucleus is that the original Ted Lasso character was quite belligerent. He was really rude and he was also kind of like adult in the worst kind of way. Like Ted, Ted and Ted Lasso is quite oblivious sometimes. But this character was so ego-driven that he didn't really see anyone beyond himself, which again, feels like the complete opposite. It feels more like a Logan Roy type character as opposed to the Ted Lasso we know today. And the reason that change between like the old Ted Lasso to the new Ted Lasso occurred was because it was a response to Donald Trump. Jason Sudeikis saw the presidency of Donald Trump and he was like, no, I don't want to have a figure that's just copying the unfortunate president of the United States. I want to create a character that is able to be a role model, not just in this TV show, but for every audience member watching. That was the reason for that change. There are remnants of that character just, I think, broken into a million pieces. Sure, there's some in Jamie Tart and Roy Kent, but also I think Rupert Mannion, in a lot of ways, has that Logan Roy sensibility to him. So it's still in the show. The character of Rupert Mannion is played by Anthony Stewart Head, who is on both of our favorite program from the late 90s, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. 
I mean, that's just a straight out lie since I've only seen like three episodes and all three episodes were with you because you forced me to watch them. Someday, someday you'll learn to love it. I don't know. I... Now, of all times, because it's aged so, so, so well. Specifically that that uh, guy who ran the show. Yeah. What was his name again? Josh something. I don't, you know, he made he made a couple of small indie movies afterwards, but he never really got anywhere. Yeah, I think Anthony Stewart Head is amazing in the show. I think there's a lot of great actors as well. Nick Mohammed as Nate is another example of someone who has a pretty dense ego, but it's wrapped in a lot of other layers. And the cool thing about TV is that you can peel them back one by one over the course of like six episodes. So you really get inside the brain of Nate. And that's one thing. You said season three was the weakest, in your opinion. I agree insofar as there are elements of season three that are just straight up bewildering. But then there are also moments like Nate Shelley's arc, which I think is, to me, the strongest of his material. I agree. And that's the wonder of this show, is that because it gives itself that time and space, it's really able to do some interesting things with the time. It's just that sometimes it overextends itself in the case of some other characters, which I want to get to momentarily. Well, the interesting thing about Nate in particular is that he, in a lot of ways, showcases the classical hero's journey in the show. He starts from the bottom as Richmond's kit man. He's basically the one who's in charge of the laundry and giving them water and just basically being the slave to the actual players. But he slowly moves up the ranks because Ted Lasso notices his potential with sport tactics. He actually raises him up to be coach. But because Nath is so ambitious, he wants to move beyond Ted, which again, relating to what I, I said earlier, that Ted is like a really good father figure because he's able to prop people up to the point where he's like, okay, you go your own way now. What's interesting is that Nate rejects that because he just fundamentally disagrees with Ted Lasso's approach. He actually sees the world black and white, which is, you know, how a lot of people have started seeing the world due to the crazy things that have happened recently, such as the Trump presidency, Brexit, COVID, things that have turned people really divisive about almost every issue they contend with. Nate Shelley is representative of that. And I think that he's just the other side of the very core that makes up the show, where Ted represents the good, Nate represents the rotten, of like how how rotten people can become because of their worldview has molded into. It's never too late. Yeah, absolutely. It serves as sort of a redemption arc as well. And that's another thing that is sort of like a theme within the show, that anyone and everyone can be redeemed, or at least to some extent, except Rupert Mannion. Well, but even Rupert has little moments where it seems like there was a episode later in, I don't have the exact number, it's been over a month now since I've watched the show, full disclosure. So there was one moment where Hannah Waddingham and Anthony Head are in the same room for an entire episode and Rebecca and Rupert end up kind of melding together and Rupert concedes on something or at least it's implied that he concedes on an issue that Rebecca stands for which has to do with I think raising ticket prices on the soccer games maybe you will remember this in more detail well the thing about them is that they're the divorce couple Rebecca and Rupert were married in fact AFC Richmond was Rupert's team and then Rebecca got the team from their divorce and she wanted to ruin the team 
because she hated Rupert's guts and she wanted revenge on him. And then she fell in love with the team because of Ted himself. Which brings it back to the idea that the villain of the show is ego and it inhabits characters like a demon instead of it being something that makes each individual character evil on their own right. It can come and go as the show requires it. Yeah, exactly. I think Rupert, in some extension, Nate, sort of become cartoonish villains, or at least the show props them up to be cartoonish villains because of the way they dress and the way they operate and the end of season two and throughout season three. But even then, they get moments, especially Nate. Every character gets moments where they showcase a full roundedness. Because at the end of the day, they're all people. I think that's the great thing about this show. It doesn't try to it doesn't try to pass off like a cartoon or a lie. It's very much trying to be like, no, these are eccentric people, but they are still people. And they still have their own internal struggles, no matter how upbeat or how angry at the world they are. They always have a different side to them that the show is willing to sort of draw back the layers on for you to see. I think to round this part out, I think what's also interesting is how life imitates art in some ways. And I really want to mention this briefly, but the reason Jason Sudeikis revisited this character was because he was pushed to do so by his then-girlfriend, Olivia Wilde. And they recently, you know, went through a messy sort of breakup with each other. And and Ted Lasso is a character that's also dealing with his own sort of breakup. So do you think that it's him, not totally, obviously, but in part processing that on screen as a writer? I mean, just as a like sort of larger cultural trauma, that's something that, I mean, 50% of people have to deal yeah, with. Yeah, absolutely. And it serves as sort of like an emotional engine. As we talked about in, I think, a previous episode before, when you draw from your own truth, your own life, it's always 50%. And I think that's what Jason Sudeikis is doing. I think the big engine for his change of Ted from a belligerent character to a wholesome character wasn't just Trump. It wasn't just his response to the world around Jason Sudeikis. But I think also a response to what was going on in his own life and what he was going through and his way of processing and navigating through that. And I think that should be commended because that's what great writers do. They are able to look at the world around them and respond. But more importantly, they're able to draw from within to also talk about that. Moving to sort of stuff that we've gotten kernels of, but I want to be able to expand them. Pop the kernels, if you will. The idea that Ted Lasso was extended, so to speak, rather than renewed, is I think an idea that lived largely in the critical space and outwardly I saw lesser. And I think you might have some opinions on that as well, considering. But season two was reviewed really well, but not quite as well as season one. I think season one was kind of magic. And I did get a sense from the critics that, and I didn't agree with this in season two, I agree with it in season three more so, that the lightning in a bottle was trying to be recast Captured. And by doing so, they're just drawing moments out from the first season and trying to rehash it. I don't agree with that at all. But what I do think they were able to do successfully is renew interest in the characters by giving them new arcs to go on and new concepts to hash it out on. I don't know if every single one of them is successful. The one that comes to mind most readily is the character of Rebecca dating Sam Obasenya. That one is, I think, romanticizing something that could in practice be a little predatory, but in the show seems to play it pretty straight. It's just one of those things that I think in the larger context kind of just boggles my mind. I can't really make heads or tails of it. 
I mean, they were just trying to give the characters things to do. I think the biggest thing the season explored, season two, was the exploration of Ted's inner demons, like his inner struggles. Because season one focused on Ted helping others and lifting up others and not really dealing with his struggles head on. But in season two, it was about Ted sort of facing his struggles head on and not knowing what to do because he was so used to helping others, he didn't know how to help himself. And that was the triumph of season two because it was Ted's story, whereas the first season was the team's story. I think the best way I can give an analogy to season one and season two is that season one feels like cotton candy, feels like something that's really sweet and something that's just really fun to eat and enjoy, whereas season two feels like artisan chocolate, like really high level chocolate. It's still sweet. There's like dark undertones to it. And that was the transition from a comedy series to a dramedy series. That was the evolution of that. But again, I agree with you. I think season one and season two deserve to be acclaimed because even though they approach things differently, they approach the main things in a smart way. First season, like I said, wholesome storyline involving a famously toxic masculine industry. Whereas season two talks about the undercurrent of that, of like, these are real people, right? And even the most upbeat person in that situation has his own struggles. How does he help himself through that? Or how do people help themselves through that kind of mental duress? Really important things. But moving on to season three, I think what they sort of misstepped on was they saw season two and they were like, all right, this is the direction we need to keep going. We need to make it like a full-blown dramedy. And they looked at other shows that do dramedy better and they decided, all right, let's extend the episodes. Originally, what was 30 minute episodes became 40 minute to 50 minute and it became too much time with these characters and as you just mentioned Rebecca and Sam had their own sort of relationship going in season two and while it was sweet in moments it felt like it was the writers just simply giving these important characters something to do because they didn't really know what to do with them in season three it was almost every sort of cast member they were trying to tie up loose ends but they didn't understand that the loose ends weren't that loose to begin with. It's interesting to see someone like Sudeikis versus someone like Hader in the same Emmy category because Bill Hader wasn't precious at all with the endings of his characters in Barry. He just kind of, he rounded it out 30 minute episodes. He didn't extend a single thing. He ran it for the eight episodes that he was allotted and he did so beautifully. I think Sudeikis did the exact same thing. The only thing is that with his episodes, each one of them, I mean, the last two both ran at about an hour. And he really did take his time. Now, I don't know if the material was wrong. I think I liked, and I think more than my liking, I believe that these writers understand the characters. By no small part, I think, because many of the writers are these characters, or are aspects of these characters. The character of Jane is so integral to the engine of Coach Beard that when she appears, you instantly know that like they are kind of two sides. They're twin flames in both the sense that they are clearly faded, but also that they tend to burn each other quite a lot. And so with an episode from season two, which I don't know if it was really regarded in as much love as I have for it, the Coach Beard After Hours episode that is kind of like Fellini-esque and it does a good job getting into his in a way that if we just had a show that was as pithy as Barry, it would lose, I think, some of the magic. 
And so that's why I think if I'm meeting Ted Lasso on its own ground, I can't really knock it for having that material present. What I can and what I will say is that I think that the edits needed to be a little bit more brutal. And I think that there are some parts of this show that when you look at it in the final product, just don't make sense. And one of the big ones that I do want to point out is the Juno Temple arc. What was her character's name? It was Keely. Keely Jones. Keely takes on her own PR agency in season three, and she has a romantic relationship, a lesbian romantic relationship, which I think is a wonderful show. But it's not Ted Lasso, is it? It's not. But I'm really glad you actually mentioned Barry in this, because there is a big difference between Barry and Ted Lasso beyond its other big differences. But the core one is that Barry focuses on three sort of main characters, whereas Ted Lasso focuses on like an ensemble of characters, even though the main character is Ted Lasso himself. I would have much appreciated a season three that operated more like the show Atlanta that gave a specific character like a bottle episode, much like, you know, they did with Coach Beard played by Brandon Hunt in season two, because that way we would see a lot of the outliers of the team and we'd able to understand who they were as people beyond just being a part of the Richmond soccer team. And I think it would have fully rounded the show of like, all right, we are truly tying loose ends because we are showing you how experimental we can be with these no-name characters that we've always seen, but we have never truly gotten an introspective on. That would have been a much better and more interesting show, in my opinion. But instead, what they did, unfortunately, in my opinion, was flounder around because I don't think the writers didn't necessarily know what direction they wanted the show to go other than the end. I think they really knew what they wanted their ending to be, but they didn't know what they wanted the beginning and middle to be. And it did seem like, yes, I agree, they started to work it backwards and in the process started to fall in love with ideas that are just a little bit less discretionary than something more prestige. And I think that is a fundamental difference in Ted Lasso. And so I will push back insofar as I think that an artisanal choice like something like Atlanta or Reservation Dogs does this as well. I think that might not suit the tone of Ted Lasso that I think is really salient. And I think one of the magical things about Ted Lasso is that the characters that we do focus on get to have that really traditional 30-minute sitcom type of arc. What the problem is, is that it does ultimately feel, watching it in the final product, like there is just more material in this episode. It's like they just forgot to do another pass on the edit and cut down 20 minutes. I think if this ran on NBC, it would have looked like a very different show and probably to the benefit of the final product. But I don't mind it. In some aspects, these um, detours, I think, are really cool. With Hannah Waddingham's character, Rebecca, she gets to have this like romance plot in the middle of Ted Lasso in the Netherlands. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the characters, but I thought it was really lovely. Now, I think that could have also gone into the spinoff show. I know it wasn't a spinoff show, but in my own head it was. Because when Keely Jones appears on screen, I just pretend like I've switched channels. That's the way in which I had to deal with this. I also think it was because I was watching the show in such rapid succession. I watched almost all of Ted Lasso for this specific episode. And it meant that I was watching some of these packed two or three in a day. And it got so much that on the finale, we were supposed to record right before you had to leave for Sweden. And I fell asleep because I couldn't stomach having to watch a sitcom that ran 
one hour and 15 minutes. And I don't think it had anything to do with the material. It just had to do with the length and the and the burnout that you get watching something like that. And I think that's the difference between watching something in a binge versus watching it in a method like a week to week. I think in a week to week, it works a little bit better, but it also means that you might have to split this episode up. But if you're a mom and dad and your child has gone to bed, you know, your child goes to bed at what? 10 o'clock. You're a mom or dad. You're tired as well. If you're staying up after 10 o'clock watching the finale of Ted Lasso, what a bummer it is to have to go to bed at 11.30 and wake up for your coal mining job at 5. You know? So it's really, for the audience... Wow, that took a drastic turn. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're a blue-collar person, which I think Ted Lasso is attempting to target, you've got a really particular mentality, and I think that mentality works with the fibers of Ted Lasso. And I just think that the actual physical space of time that they are playing with on this show is a, a penalty rather than a benefit. I don't think it is a negative so far, but it is a penalty. It's a handicap. Let's talk about sports shows. Sports shows in general are kind of hard to nail, right? There's not a lot of them. I feel like network executives aren't interested in a sports show. And yet, when a hit sports show comes along, it's like pop rocks. People can't get enough of them. Yeah, absolutely. I think the last big sports show I can think of was Friday Night Lights. Weirdly. Weirdly, right? And it spawned a lot of famous actors today, Jesse Plemons, Coney Britton, Kyle Chandler, Taylor K uh, Kisich. All of them like have gone on to be successful actors today in various degrees. That show started running in 2006. We haven't had like a proper sports show until now, at least that I can recall or think about to such a pedigree. And I think the reason is that it's hard to shoot because you need to have a balance between the drama and then a balance between the games of shooting the actual drama within the games themselves. And it's interesting that we're talking about Friday Night Lights because that is an American football sort of drama, whereas this is a soccer football sort of drama. But this is a penalty I'd actually want to give to Ted Lasso because even though it is a sports show, 90% of the time it doesn't feel like a sports show. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't show much of the soccer match. And that has always disappointed me because there's a lot of drama that can happen in those games. And those games are 90 minutes long. So I would have preferred to see like moment to moment drama that's happening on the pitch as opposed to just something that's happening in the locker rooms while they're training up for the match. Because to me, that is peak conflict, right? When a team goes up against another team, that is very much the definition of conflict. You're going to an actual pitch to fight to win a game. And I feel like Ted Lasso didn't utilize sort of that conflict enough, especially in that third season where we see a lot more of the pitch, but they don't pick and choose their moments well to show conflict. I think they just really continue showing just snapshots of little inklings of conflict on the pitch, but never truly going into exploring them. And I think, funnily enough, a medium that does that really well is a medium we covered quite a, a while ago, which is anime. There has been a lot of really great sports animes out there. It's like a whole defining genre. There are entire episodes where they're just on like the pitch or the court playing an entire match, and it's covered for like four episodes, and five minutes could be the most intense thing. Even one minute could be the most intense thing. 
because you can really play with time. I had never considered animation as a mode for sports content. And yet, every time they do a sports moment on Ted Lasso, because you're right, they don't ever take a full episode. It's always kind of peppered in with other things. And I honestly, I like the balance mostly, but I'm also not a football fan. I, the ball is effectively in your court. Ho, ho, ho. I mean, I'm not a massive sports fan either. I can just recognize the fact that, hey, this is literal conflict. Use it. But the interesting thing is that they CG the shots. So even the moments that are real, like, quote unquote, live action, they're also VFX shots. Yeah, and I understand that. I do understand it. It is limited by that. But again, if Ted Lasso is constantly innovating per season or what it should have done was constantly innovate per season they could have done an entire episode where it was just on the pitch i mean considering it is apple tv i don't think that budget is particularly an issue there so that's still valid and i think also considering all of the stuff that they were shooting it's absolutely feasible that they could have just narrowed their gaze but that's kind of the general sort of idea is if they had narrowed their gaze back on to the court and to what happens inside the how many walls of the stadium you might actually get something that is just as interesting as what they ended up giving us and we would be able to keep the tone of the first two seasons in a way that's really interesting so i absolutely agree and especially because it's like we were talking about with daisy jones the iconic sports entertainment of our time it's all movies largely there's a ton of i mean you've got like when i was looking through like other soccer content i think the big one is isn't bend it like beckham isn't that a soccer movie but that's the big one i can think of i don't know if there has been one and that's back when Kira Knightley was yet a babe she has grown 20 years since then you know everything else there's a lot of sports there's a lot of football a lot of American football there's tons of other stuff but not a whole lot in terms of soccer and I mean it also might just be largely because it's not as American but there still is just I think a dearth of sports content especially considering how many people watch sports and I really do expect in the future that there's going to be a little bit more of it. The question is, is any of it going to be Ted Lasso brand? Is the IP alive, do you think? I mean, Taika Waititi is about to come out with his own soccer slash football movie starring Michael Fassbender, and it's going to focus on the Samoan team. To me, that's really interesting, and I'm really excited to watch it, but I think there is a future in that genre. It's just few and far between. It's a niche genre. It is a niche genre. You know, like the other big sports movie I can think of is uh, The Blind Side. Why do you think that is? Because there are so many soccer fans. The blind side is American football, but I think it's just like sport movies are not blockbusters. They're inherently dramas like Coach Carter and it like Beckham, where it's also like a romantic comedy and also about like exploration about like the Indian British community. And uh, the blind side and Coach Carter have to do with race. That's the other thing that I think is actually really interesting about that genre. A lot of sport movies talk about race and that inherently is a dramatic sort of genre. I think that's why people don't necessarily make them because they're award-driven. They're not money-driven. They're not blockbusters. They're not meant to be blockbusters because for some reason, I mean, I understand the reason sports, especially in America, are ultimately driven by race. And that is a very dramatic and important topic to talk about. That is not meant necessarily just for entertainment. Even the most recent one, Air, has somewhat to do with race because it talks about like the Nike deal with Michael Jordan. 
totally. I saw that movie. I thought it was not very good. But it's, it is, I think, something that people really gravitate towards. So that is worth noting, I suppose. But specifically in the Ted Lasso world, I was curious. I mentioned this, I think, two or three times now, but I could see one that is starring Juno Temple in her own version of a new PR agency, you know, Keely Jones PR, the show. But in terms of a Ted Lasso-themed soccer show, I'm not entirely sure what that could look like. Maybe Roy Kent taking on a team could be something like that. But otherwise, there's still a lot of good talent from Ted Lasso that's already moving on to the next thing, right? We haven't even mentioned, but the Brandon Hunt and Brett Goldstein, who both play part of the, what's that trio? The trio, the trio, what's that called? The Diamond Dogs. Yeah, so the Diamond Dogs, they're all writers, and so they can all kind of do their own thing. And already, there's a lot of love going to this show Shrinking, which is Harrison Ford yet again. (laughs) He was almost going to retire, I think, three different times, but Harrison Ford's back on TV. He's working on, he did, I think it was a 1923, and now he's doing this. And so already, I think there's a little bit of the like Ted Lasso overflow happening. But I would still love to see this content moving forward. I think the characters are all really interesting, even the small characters. And I'd love to see them come back and do another round. But also, I think that the show did what it needed to do. And there is a lot of material to go back and look into it for fans of the show. I think for like super fans, I think there's a lot to dive back into with the material that they gave us. So I am of two minds. I mean, there's a lot of confusing uncertainty with Ted Lasso right now because it was marketed like this recent season was marketed as the final season of the show. But for some reason, it hasn't been officially canceled. Instead, it's still ongoing. Even on Wikipedia just now, it says on uh, to present. And I think the plan is, the tentative plan is to end Ted Lasso's arc and just keep Richmond's arc going. So I think they're going to do a show without Ted Lasso and just keep all the other characters together. And usually they just do that and like spin it off with a new title. That's happened on plenty of network shows. The one that I think of most prominently. Yeah, Frasier. Well, but Frasier was kind of a a new reframe. I'm thinking of something like Roseanne getting axed and then immediately getting spun into an identical program without Roseanne. Uh, Similarly with The Closer. The Closer had Kira Sedwick and then they ended that, but then spun off a different show about the people in the show The Closer minus Kira Sedwick. So it's something that has got quite the precedent. And that show, The Connors, that show is still hill running to this day and it has some high-grade actors who have other projects going on laurie metcalf john goodman and real actors with full careers that's the big thing is that it seems like goodman he can just kind of come in i guess they probably just throw him in for like you know like a week and a half and they shoot all his coverage and then try to like make it from there because he really does have a full career beyond the connors it seems yeah i'm really curious to see what the future of tad lasso is again nobody really knows what it is i don't think the writers really know what it is yet but i am excited for it because i think what the show needs right now is a proper evolution and i think moving away from the genesis of this show which was ted lasso might be the right move to sort of revitalize it past its weekend season which was unfortunately season three 
And I hope it does. And when it does, I'm excited to cover it with you, Niv, on Zeitgeist. This has been another episode in the tank. And I thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, my friends on the internet, I appreciate you guys. And if you are still listening, do do us a favor. Give us review or stars. I'm not entirely sure how it goes on all of these platforms, but I know Apple lets you do review with stars. I would, That would be really appreciated. It does that with Spotify too, which is where I tend to run our music. And if you are listening on Spotify, thank you so much because you get that additional segment of music alongside it. We also have music on our home platform, which is Mixcloud. So if you are on Apple or on any other dozen platforms that you can listen to our podcast, do think about tuning in because you get that additional interim that I curate every single month. And until next time, I'm Jordan Conrad. And I'm Neva Was. And we're signing off. We will see you within, I think, about two weeks' time. So until then, stay safe, keep watching critically, and we'll see you on the flip. Bye!